Our Cancer Journey. Hey, Our Cancer Journey podcast friends. On today's show, we have Professor Levi Waldron. Dr. Levi is an associate professor of biostatistics at the City University of New York in its Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy. In this episode, we're going to discuss biostatistics and bioinformatics with Dr. Levi in the world of data, information, and biostatistics computing is so important to the healthcare community and for our individual health, this is going to be a fascinating episode. Check out this clip from the show. Yeah, I, I started out in a head and neck cancer research group at the Ontario Cancer Institute studying all kinds of head and neck cancers. I had at the time only a fairly vague idea of the disease as a clinical disease. But yeah, I had never met a patient and I had little idea of what the treatment involved. The samples I analyzed were always taken at the start of treatment during surgery. And I created a lot of those curves, these so-called Kaplan-Meier survival curves that predict the survival probability of a patient as a function of time based on their situation. And it never occurred to me then to think about myself on one of those curves. But let me tell you, they look quite different after having thought that that curve represented my own outcome. The Our Cancer Journey podcast is a place for those impacted by cancer, their caregivers, and their loved ones. Together, we explore ways that we can optimize our lives through the experiences of diagnosis and treatments and beyond into the future of survivorship. And now your host, Bruce Watkins. Greetings, everyone. I am Bruce Watkins, your host for the Our Cancer Journey podcast. This is the place where together we'll explore ways to help you feel better, live happier, expand your self-empowerment, and enhance your life experience. Welcome to the show today. This is going to be such an interesting episode, and I'm glad you tuned in today because Professor Levi Waldron, or Dr. Levi as we interchange it, this guy is one understated but really interesting guy. His background is so rich in the area of his expertise, and yet we get to sit down with him and have a casual conversation that you likely will never have with a data scientist of this guy's gravitas. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Levi. Professor Levi Waldron graduated with a Bachelor's of Science in Physics from the University of British Columbia. He then went on to get his Master's of Science in Physics at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada, and then his PhD at the University of Toronto, where he specialized in a very unique field called wood physics. Yes, that's right, wood physics. And that sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Because when I think of physics, and maybe you think of it too, we think of things like outer space and ratios between different things and trying to calculate the uncalculatable. Or maybe something like engineering, where really precise measurements and predictions need to be made of bridges and buildings. But living things have a physics, too. And it's actually really interesting to hear Dr. Levi talk about that. But that's not what we're going to discuss in our episodes here on this podcast, because after Dr. Levi began investing time and in studying the physics of wood in this incredibly interesting space, he realized he wanted to take all that scientific prowess and education and skills and apply it to something that was more meaningful to him. 
and he met somebody that was involved in biostatistics and public health, and he thought that was really interesting. So he changed course and did his postdoctoral work at places like Royal Roads University, the University of Toronto, the Ontario Cancer Institute, and finally at Harvard University's School of Public Health. In these areas, he began to invest more and more in using biostatistics, bioinformatics, which we're going to hear all about, and applying that to research to enhance, augment, and in some cases, discover things that the researchers, because of their proximity to their work, could not see. This blew my mind and showed me that there's a lot more going on in the scientific community than we think about. And that's exactly why I wanted to bring these particular episodes to all of you. Because we walk through life sometimes having this picture of what research is, what discoveries are, what breakthroughs look like, and who the people are that do those. Well, you're going to learn in these episodes the people that could find a cure to cancer, and if not that, at least understand the efficacy of treatments that we receive or our loved ones receive, may be the most unlikely people. So let's check out this first episode where Dr. Levi kind of introduces these ideas, tells us how he got into this, and this episode will help tee us up for the next episode where we talk more deeply about statistics and how we can better understand what statistics we hear reported in the media and discussed by people are valid and which ones are not ready for prime time. It's going to help us in our discussions and our decisions about our own lives. So we'll roll the tape with Professor Waldron in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to do two things. The first thing is tell you that I'm going to do something in this episode that we've done a few times before on the podcast, and I've gotten some favorable comments about it, so I appreciate that. As the recorded interview is playing, I'm going to hop in and provide some additional perspectives that occurred to me at the time, but I was so engaged in talking to Dr. Levi, the next thing just came up, the next thing just came up. So I made a quick note, and I just kept going. So I'm going to pop in with those perspectives, because there was some real light bulb moments in this thing. I just realized some connections and some revelations about how things work that I never knew, and I wanted to make sure we highlighted those for all of you. So I'm going to hop in, so I really appreciate you taking a listen to that, and I hope you enjoy those. And please, if you do like this show, please follow our program on your podcast app. You can do it anywhere on any podcast app throughout the world. Just hit the word follow, and you will get the immediate notifications when we drop new episodes. We've got a lot of great things coming out this season, so please do that. You can also go to www.ourcancerjourney.com. And you can go to our contact page and send us a note and we'll notify you by email or you can go to our Facebook page. All those links are in the show notes. So please follow us and share this information. That's why we do it, to help the hundreds of thousands of people that are having cancer events every year. They need us and we want to share it with them. So thank you for that. Okay, so let's go ahead and roll the tape with Professor Levi Waldron right now and make sure to listen to the end because it just gets better and better. And this will tee us up for the second episode coming up right after this one's published. Thanks a lot for listening. Here's Dr. Levi now. 
Professor Waldron, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. I am absolutely thrilled you're here because this is one of the most interesting topics I've read about in a long, long time. Thank you, Bruce. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, and thanks for being open to talk to me, especially being a non-academic and a non-expert in statistics. There's a whole lot of people out there like me that, one, want to know a little bit more about what's going on with statistics because we hear about them so much and they influence so much of the things around us, and yet we don't have any way to interpret this stuff and to get an insider's view of it. It's really helpful. So thanks for taking the time to be on the show today. Well, it's it's really a pleasure. And I should say that I think statistics are, like you said, a part of everybody's life. And whether you know anything about them or not, you hear them and probably make decisions based on them. So it's nice to try to get a little bit of an intuitive understanding of how some things work and some of the ways that we go wrong with them. Now, I want to let the audience know right up front that, uh, oh, may I call you Levi, doctor? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know if it's a personal thing, but I just like talking to people. Right. right. <laughs> okay. So anyway, ladies and gentlemen, Levi, our guest, is not only an accomplished statistician and a biostatistician at that, we're going to be learning about that, but he is also something else, too, that we might be able to relate to. Levi is a cancer survivor. So, Levi, is it going to be okay if we talk a little bit about your cancer story as well? Yes, absolutely. Well, I was really happy to see that you're being as transparent as you are about your story. And I'll save some of the information for later, but thank you very much for what you're doing because I think your transparency is really sending a message to the community that it's okay to get out there and share your story. So thanks for that. Thank you, Bruce. When I was diagnosed with oropharyngeal cancer, after the shock of that wore off a little bit, I saw sharing my experience as, as a way to make something positive come of that experience. Okay, well, this topic, Dr. Levi, is very, very broad. So we can go a lot of different directions. What I'm thinking about is let's just start briefly with an explanation on what biostatistics or this term that I read about in your bio, bioinformatics. Give us a real high-level version of what that is. We're going to drill down into it a little bit more in some different areas, but just give us a quick upshot. Sure. So biostatistics is statistics applied to biology and biomedicine. And bioinformatics is informatics, so computing technologies applied to, to biology and biomedicine. And specifically, what I do is study what we call whole genome assays, where we measure DNA mutations and RNA expression and protein expression, all these different aspects of cells across the entire human genome. And we can look at those even at the single cell level now in the tumors of cancer patients and try to understand why there are differences in the progression of disease and the response to treatment for different patients. By statistics, I mean dealing with uncertainty in numbers. There's uncertainty in individual outcomes. There's uncertainty in how groups of people will respond to a treatment or to anything. So it's trying to find predictors of outcomes and understanding the progression of disease and treatment 
in the face of uncertainty and certain things that are not entirely predictable. And in the midst of that, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's errors in measurement, there's inherently random outcomes in patients. And so we have to try to find the signal in quite a lot of noise and try to interpret the data as much as possible, but not anymore. You know, Levi, that's a really interesting phrase you just said, that you were trying to extrapolate information out of all this data. You're looking for information through the noise. Hey friends, it's Bruce and I'm popping into the show like I said I would in the beginning of the podcast because something important just happened. Did you hear what Professor Waldron said at the end of that last paragraph? He said, we interpret data as much as possible, but no more. Wow. Man, does that have some depth, doesn't it? Well, let's think about this, okay? Our society observes things and discusses things all the time. And sometimes we find out stuff on our own, but much of the time we get information from somewhere. And that's what we use to manage our lives. Now, usually that information that we're looking at has some basic facts in it that are pretty self-evident. They're right there. You can see it. They're reliable. But that doesn't necessarily answer the deep reason about why something's happening or what's going to happen. They're just some observations that give us a few insights. But that doesn't stop us from wanting to know what the answer is and continuing to look for it, even if the information it will clarify it isn't fully there. Now, in past podcasts, we talked about human behavior and we talked about this concept called causality. And that's when we try as a species to figure out what the root cause of something is, because that principle of causality is there's got to be a root cause. And that's fine. People, of course, want to know the root cause, but it's when we begin to seek the cause beyond what we have available that we can sometimes go beyond reason. We can begin to see things that aren't there. And the reason why we want that is because we want answers. Now, why is this happening? I don't know. There's a lot of reasons, but maybe it's the fight or flight mechanism we talked about where we feel in danger or we feel disoriented in our environment and that fight or flight thing gets triggered. And there's not too many things that are as destabilizing or dangerous as finding out that you have a dangerous healthcare diagnosis or somebody you love does. So it makes a lot of sense that you might be overly reaching for answers to try to get out of danger, to try to be safe, to try to relieve this, and you want those answers now. So in our private lives, that can get us to jump to conclusions. That could get us in crazy conversations where we're talking about things that are unfounded. <laughs> you think that's been happening in our society? Well, clearly it's not working out great, is it? So that little life lesson is good, but let's think about these data scientists like Dr. Waldron here. These professionals in science have an ethical responsibility to look only at the information in front of them and report it as it is. If they want to indicate a few possibilities here and there, they have to separate that factual statement about what they believe to be true versus something that is more speculative and not yet fully baked, not yet ready for prime time. So the good news here is that the vast majority of people in these professions of research 
are really ethical, and they do their job wonderfully and consistently. But if they were to fall prey to some of this human nature dark side, they could go down that slippery slope and start expanding and twisting a fact here and a fact there to make them connect. And it could be very unintentional that maybe they just start sliding towards theories and beliefs instead of what's in the research. And obviously a worst-case scenario is where they give way to their bias and their desire for particular outcomes drives them to find answers that serve special interests or particular ideologies. All right, now let me be clear. It's okay to have beliefs. And it's even okay to have biases because we have them. But if we do have them, we need to check them at the door. The data scientists need to check them at the door because the information they're giving us, we rely on, the whole world relies on them. And we personally, in our own personal lives, need to check them at the door too so they don't come in and influence us to do things that are unsound and not based upon the facts that are right before us. Being present actually means a lot more than just a tiny frame of mind. It is about a series of actions. And this data interpretation thing is part of that. All right. Thanks for listening to that. Let's get back to the interview with Dr. Levi. Dr. Levi, thanks for that definition. That really helps. Now, you've been doing this a while, and I imagine this is a pretty rapidly changing environment. Yeah, it's been a time of incredible discovery and advancements in technology since I've been working in this field. And the technologies that were brand new after the completion of the Human Genome Project that completely changed how we could do biology by allowing us to look at whole genome data are now completely obsolete. Those changes have been going on rapidly and constantly. When we talked and we were setting up the interview, you were mentioning to me something I thought was really interesting. You were talking about the fact that researchers out there are collecting information, and there's all these independent researchers that are doing independent research, and they're all producing data. And some of them are on the bleeding edge of the curve of research, and some of them are following up on other people's research. There's a lot of complexity to this area. And that the quality of the information that's coming out is directly a result of not only the new cool things they're testing, but also the methods that they used to do those tests. And you mentioned the methodology is a really big deal. And from a guy like a regular guy, not a statistician, not a genius, you know, I'm always thinking about the tool. I'm always thinking about the invention. Like, what is this thing that's going to cure? But if a person's going about looking at that thing, and examining it, and their method is kind of not good, then the information that comes out is probably questionable too, right? Right. You can imagine when a new technology comes out, there are some initial methods to analyze it, uh, but those methods necessarily lag the data because people like me, the data analysts, the statisticians, need to have the data first, and then we need some time to figure out what are the best methods to analyze the data. So almost by necessity, those original analyses are not using optimal methods. 
Hey, it's Bruce again, and I'm popping in here with a rather embarrassing admission here, but some of you may have had the same impression as I did too, so I just wanted to make sure we were kind of all on the same page. You know, as Professor Levi was talking there about how data and data analysis is so integral with research, it dawned on me that I didn't really have a clue of the depth of the partnership in the research space. Maybe that's because I had this vision from when I was a kid, from sci-fi movies, of laboratories with beakers and Bunsen burners and tubes and boiling stuff and scientists in lab coats. Maybe they had some crazy hair. (laughs) But these medical, sterile, white research laboratories where everybody looks studious and they're looking seriously at stuff, or maybe they're looking through atomic microscopes and there's Petri dishes and stuff growing I always thought it was the medical hands-on technical people that were doing physical research and then reporting what they found. Those were the researchers. That's what I thought the research was. So, as you're listening along with me, maybe you're realizing too that these super powerhouse data scientists, while they may not be in the lab with the researchers, at least not always, Maybe they have a much bigger role in this research and the eventual discoveries than we ever thought. So I'm going to pose a couple questions to Dr. Levi, and I suspect when he answers, we are going to come to a real dot-connecting moment. Let's check this out. Hey, Dr. Levi, I want to ask a question, okay? I want to make sure I'm clear about something. When I hear the term data scientist or biostatistics, I first think people are compiling data. They're bringing together reports. And then they're doing some computations and looking for the kind of things I see in business. You know, ratios, measures to project outcomes. They might be looking for some commonality. And then you go through a process of reporting the information that you found. It's kind of like a consolidation reporting effort. But as I'm listening to you, it sounds like you're doing way more than that. I mean, it's clear you're looking at scientists' work from all over the globe, but it sounds like you're looking at individual results and looking much deeper at the patterns and even making some recommendations and suggestions about the process. It sounds like you are a deep, deep, deep partner to these people and in many ways an equal contributor to this process. But even more than that, I'm realizing as you're talking that These individual researchers in their one-off laboratories, they can't see what you see. They don't see all of the other work. They don't have the supercomputing potential you do. And that's a systemic issue with that kind of physical geo-based research. Because unless somebody is pulling all this together and then looking for the bigger issues that could be spotted in this mass data... So many things could be missed and so many things could be problems that aren't highlighted. Pulling this data together must be hard sometimes and places might not be even prepared to give it out in this capacity. Is there some effort to try to coordinate this so they can solve this problem and you and your colleagues can do the work you're doing that I'm learning is so clearly important to our future? Right. So I think it's really important that we have 
repositories where these data get placed after publication so that other researchers can use them. And that's how we're able to continue developing better methods on these data and also to combine them to get larger sample sizes and to replicate findings in independent data sets and try to understand what are the signals, what are the noise, and learn as much as we can from the data as a whole, not just from all these individual data sets that get produced along the way. So a lot of my work has to do with creating unified databases of publicly available data and analyzing those in novel ways to learn something that wasn't learned in those original analyses. Levi, tell us just briefly, how did you get into this? What was your initial studies like? And what have you noticed since the day you started? And how things are going today? Sure. So I started out, my education was in physics, and I was studying molecules and the hydrogen atom in my master's degree. And then I was studying the physics of wood during my PhD. And at some point, a couple of years after my PhD, I wanted to study something that felt more relevant to the world to me. I had a bit of a hard time seeing the importance of what I was doing at the time. Well, the the physics of wood sounds pretty interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit of a niche field there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was interesting. I, I could predict like how chemicals moved through wood and how chemicals would leach out of pressure treated wood. And yeah, that was pretty interesting, but ultimately it was a pretty small niche field. And so I heard about bioinformatics through some of my colleagues and started looking around for postdoc positions. And based on my physics background, got a postdoc position at the Ontario Cancer Institute in a head and neck cancer research group. I still remember in that first year that I was there, I analyzed something approaching about 15 different data sets. You know, they had a big backlog of data sets because they hadn't had anyone to analyze them. And then I arrived and was just like analyzing a new data set every few weeks. And I had just learned the field at all. So, you know, I did the best I can, but you can imagine that that's not an uncommon circumstance that with these new technologies generating new kinds of data that there aren't really well-established methods for that data analysis is challenging and it's imperfect and it's being done by people who are just learning how to do it. So you just jumped right in with both feet and here you are just plowing through all this data. I've got a picture in my mind of what a data set is. Sometimes those can be really massive, right? Yep. (laughs) Is that your scientific answer? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Data sets vary from some gigabytes per sample, say for a sequencing data set. Now they can be 50, 100 gigabytes, even for a, a single sample. And you can imagine that then those are done for hundreds or thousands of patients. So that data can get big. They can be many terabytes, even petabytes for big projects. Then they have to go through a lot of processing to get into a state with actual numbers that are based on things like genes that a statistician like me can study. So it's the size of the data and then all of the different steps of processing them down into something ultimately analyzable and relatable to patients. My God, you know, 
that sounds like such an art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm confident that there's people out there that probably think that doing this kind of review, deep review of data, is like mathematics or like accounting. And it's really not. Mm-hmm. It's, isn't it more like looking at something and trying to see the patterns in it, kind of trying to see the correlations and look for relationships? It is almost an art, isn't it? A lot of what we do is exploratory data analysis and trying to develop hypotheses from our data. This is different from, let's say, a clinical trial that is testing the effectiveness of a drug where you know exactly what your analysis is going to be in advance. It's not like that. We collect data having no idea what we're going to find, measuring data on tens of thousands of variables and wondering what in there we're going to find. So yeah, it is. It's a process that's hard to formulate in a lot of cases because it takes experience and trying a lot of different things and ultimately trying to understand something from your data and not overinterpret it either. Now, before we go any further, I want to point out a very serendipitous thing. And that's that Dr. Levi here was studying not just any cancer, but he spent quite a bit of time studying a particular type of cancer. And it was a kind of cancer that would become kind of familiar to Dr. Levi (laughs) about a decade later. Do you want to tell us about that? I have been a researcher in cancer genomics for a while now, about 10 years, and I've been working to try to understand better what causes cancer and what causes people to have different outcomes and responses to treatment. But I really never had any idea of what it was like to be one of the patients that I was studying. Wow. Yeah, I I started out in a head and neck cancer research group at the Ontario Cancer Institute uh, studying all kinds of head and neck cancers. I had at the time only a fairly vague idea of the disease as a clinical disease. I had only a vague idea that there were HPV positive and negative types of this cancer and that they had different outcomes and different causes. But mostly I just knew about the gene expression patterns of this disease. I knew that Tumor tissues had completely different gene expression patterns than normal tissues, that almost every gene in those tissues was changed from normal tissues. And I knew that there were the so-called field effect of how those expression changes could extend into normal tissues around the margins of a tumor. But yeah, I had never met a patient and I had little idea of what the treatment involved. The samples I analyzed were always taken at the start of treatment during surgery. And, you know, I analyzed data sets that had patient outcomes, which were coded as zero for a patient who survived and one for a patient who had died and like a number of months until until the death. That's a really personal little thing. (laughs) Zero and one. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) So you weren't just doing basic statistic reporting. I mean, you were taking this data and you were also extrapolating out potential projections, right? You were looking at survivability rates or other possibilities or percentage outcomes for different factors. Wasn't that part of your job too? Yeah, that's right. I had data on the outcomes of patients and on their clinical presentations and gene expression of their tumors. And I would try to build models to forecast the survival of patients based on those factors. 
And I created a lot of those curves, these so-called Kaplan-Meier survival curves that predict the survival probability of a patient as a function of time based on their situation. And it never occurred to me then to think about myself on one of those curves. But let me tell you, they look quite different after having thought that that curve represented my own outcome once I was a patient looking in the literature at the curves that applied to me. The importance of getting those right and the significance that they had for for real people came home to me in a way that it really never had before. Well, friends, we're going to end part one of our interview with Professor Levi Waldron right here. And wow, what a point to end on. Can you imagine what it must have been like for our new friend here, Dr. Levi? Here he is, a deeply trained data scientist. He knows what these numbers mean. He spent time and care crafting massive databases, going over the data to scrub it, to make sure it was as accurate as possible because he knew what was at stake for others. And then one day, he unexpectedly gets the news that he is a cancer victim as well. And then he goes back to that data that he created, that he knows deeply what it means. And he opens up the report and finds the one scenario there with ones and zeros representing mortality and knows that that study is talking about him. I mean, whoa. (laughs) Now, the reason why I bring this up is because we likely experienced something very different than Dr. Levi did, or somewhat different. Let me explain. Unlike Dr. Levi, who's an expert, you and I and most of the people in the cancer community that hears the words, you've got cancer, we're not. So when we do what a lot of people do, we either ran out and talked to some experts about our diagnosis, or we went on the internet and read voluminous amounts of stuff that we couldn't completely understand or comprehend, we had a little safety valve. It was knowing that we didn't know. It gave us a little opportunity to put some of this in a compartment, to understand that, you know, I don't really know if any of this is right or it applies to me. I'm going to wait and see what other people say. There was a space there, that gap. And Dr. Levi didn't have that luxury like we did. Because he knew the data. He put it together. Now, when I thought about that, and then I heard the rest of his story, which is amazing, about how he worked through it, and then made commitments to not only use the data as effectively as he could, but also use his personal story as effectively as he could. It was great. So when episode two airs, please listen to it. We're not only going to talk about biostatistics and informatics and all kinds of other stuff about data, but we're going to talk about Dr. Levi and his personal commitment to take his story and his own data to be an example to all of us on what we could do to help in this quest to use mass computing, to analyze, to identify, and possibly develop cures and better treatments for all of us. So be sure to listen to Episode 2 
and I want to thank each and every one of you as well. Because we here on the Our Cancer Journey podcast made a commitment a long time ago to bring new and interesting topics to you that would help inform, that would help inspire, and maybe open a new door for you to consider new options and empower you to ask more meaningful questions so you could take command of your life. Thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you at episode two and all of our future episodes. Remember to follow our program and go on to ourcancerjourney.com and keep up to date. Love you all. Talk to you soon. This episode of the Our Cancer Journey podcast is sponsored and produced by Fairlead Media. All rights reserved.